Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I was very unhappy to not be with you last week. Very unhappy. Um, as some of you know, it's one of my favorite parts of Torah, the birth of Moshe, um, the whole story of these women who make possible, essentially, the redemption from Egypt, these women who working together and crossing all kinds of boundaries and crossing what you'd expect and taking the other that's supposed to be demonized, right, as one's own, all of these ways that the women of the Exodus, uh, beginning of Exodus narrative, um, really put the crack at the foundation of the empire of evil um, in our story. So, um, so I was very sad not to study that with you um, last Where week. Where are they now? Where are those women now? Right, right, right. We have to, we have to, we have to, we have to be those women now and those men. Um, so, but we're going to be now in the second part of the beginning of the Exodus narrative. Things move pretty quickly. Right, we got the birth of Moshe, and then boom, like a few pages later, he's in Midian, he's married Zipporah, he's hanging out with Yitro, and he's been commissioned, right, by God to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Um, and so we're at, the, we're at the very beginning of that narrative, the whole plague narrative, this is where it begins. So listen for already the introduction of some of the themes, some of the language, some of the imagery that's going to be used throughout the plague narrative, all the way through uh, till Beshalach when the Israelites uh, actually leave Egypt. Um, so you know last year I was pretty tight with Moshe. Yes. I was, I was hanging pretty tight. I was, I was pretty close with Moshe last year. So um, we'll see what happens this year um, and how it goes. Uh, so this is actually my first encounter with Moshe this year um, with y'all. All right, so we're in Parshat Va'era. So what happened last week? Moshe was born. Moshe was commissioned. Where was he commissioned? It was just last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask trick questions. Don't ask trick questions. What's the scene where Moshe's commissioned? The burning bush. Thank you, George. See, you turn 85 and you know some things. <laughs> I remember that. I know everything, George. I know everything. Um, I don't know, because I'm in this. 333. Chapter 6, verse 2. <laughs> But it's not going to help you answer my question. So George got the right answer. Moshe is commissioned at the burning bush. Moshe is commissioned at the sneh. Lots of commentary, lots of questions about why a sneh. Like of all things, why does God appear to Moshe out of a sneh, out of a little thorny scrappy bush. It was kind of to see how observant he was. So to, to see how observant Moshe was. Would Moshe turn aside to look at the bush that's on fire? We've talked about this lots in years past, right? You're out with your father-in-law's very flammable flock and something's on fire and it's the desert. Generally, what do you do? You, you go the other way. Right. So 
Um, so Moshe, of course, turns aside to see, and in turning aside, right, he confronts the divine. And God says, you are going to go take off your shoes, right? The place you're standing on is holy ground. And I need you to go to Pharaoh. I need you to talk to the Israelites, blah, blah, blah. And um, Moshe's excited, right? No. 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 <laughs> what does Moshe say? Beyond who am I? I am here. You picked the wrong guy. Yeah, I'm not the right one. I'm not the right one for I this. Speak. I can't speak. I'm terrible at this. Right? So Moshe from the beginning is chutzpah dick enough to tell, right, God, you made a mistake. Right? It's very Jewish. Very Jewish. So, um, but, but one of the things Torah, I think, is telling us is good leadership is generally reluctant leadership. If you want the job really badly, you're probably not the one for the job, right? So um, Moshe is, does not want this. Moshe like, is, is saying, mm-mm, you, you messed up, pick somebody else. Uh, so Moshe goes and does what he's told eventually uh, and goes to Pharaoh and demands the release of the Israelites and Pharaoh's cool with that, right? <laughs> so, um, what does Pharaoh do? Do we remember? So, and what does Pharaoh do in that hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Takes the straw from the people and says, you have to make the same amount of brick without material. <clears throat> Clearly, if y'all are agitating about liberation, if y'all are agitating about how hard your lives are, you have some time on your hands. If you're like, you know, sitting around talking about maybe we could have a different future, then you don't have enough to do. So I'm gonna take away material and not lessen your quota of production at all. All right, so when the people hear that, how do they feel about Moshe? <laughs> right. Right. So like all oppressed people, oppressed people tend to turn on their leaders. Right? Um, it is absolutely part of any kind of study of human nature. When you look at an oppressed people, one of the things they do is that they turn on leadership. And that is certainly what we're going to see uh, here. All right, so that is setting the scene for chapter 6, verse 2, Parshat Va'era. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yudhei I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. I have now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the Israelite people, I am Adonai. I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and through extraordinary chastisements. And I will make you my people, make you to be my people. 
and I will be your God. And you shall know that I, Adonai, am your God who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give to you, uh, give it to you for a possession. I, Adonai. But when Moses told this to the Israelites, they would not listen to Moses. Their spirits crushed by cruel bondage. All right. So we have by the bear Elohim Moshe, God speaking to Moshe, saying, What? Saying, Vayomer Elav Ani, I am what? Yud Hey Vav Hey. All right. So I am Yud Hey Vav Hey. I appeared to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as El Shaddai. But I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yud Hey Vav Hey. Why did I write it left to right? Because English is written left to right. Well, you were writing it in English. That's English. <laughs> did I miss something? That is English, right? Okay, just checking. Some, sometimes, people, sometimes. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So, right to left is yud hey vav hey. Left to right, an approximation in English letters about what you might get. But actually, this probably should be a W. Um, this is how it's it's written when you're looking at ancient languages, and we're going to look at that a little bit today. I am yud hey vav hey, but your ancestors only knew me as El Shaddai. They did not know me as yud heh vav heh right. the, the shin we have on our window? That, the shin that we have in the window and on a, mezuz, <laughs> on a mezuzah, that shin is for Shaddai. Right? El Shaddai, probably a very old name. A very old Semitic name for God. What we're being told in Torah right now is that this is Mushite. This name is Mushite. This is coming from Moshe. That this name is unknown in Israel before Moshe. That would suggest that this is a new name for God. That earlier, earlier generations knew God as El Shaddai. Who is El? Let's remind ourselves who's El? <laughs> The big God of right. El is the chief God of the pantheon of the Canaanites. So if you have this new religion in town and you're converting Canaanites to your religion, you'd better call the deity something familiar to them, right? So they would have been familiar with this name El as they are becoming Israelite. As the Canaanites are converted to the Israelite religion, one of the names for God is the name that they are familiar with, their chief God of their pantheon, El. All right. So El Shaddai, there's lots of this pairing of divine names. El Elyon, have you heard that one? 
All right, El Elyon, also probably a very old name for the divine. We see cognates of these names in Ugaritic uh, and in other early languages that are parent languages to Hebrew. El Elyon, things like El Shaddai, this compound name, we see it a lot. We do not see this. We do not see yud heh We do not see a cognate of yud heh anywhere. Possibly a very new name. Who, the thing that we're always concerned with, if we're going to get really nerdy, as you know, I tend to, we're going to worry about where is this text from? Aren't we? Because if we have a new name for God, we need to know who's, who's introducing that name. When does that name come into usage, right? What's the source of this text? J, E, P, or D? Any guesses? It's a P source. Right. Who, who's P? Priests. Priests. Possibly related to the rise in power of the priestly class. It is the priestly class, likely, that is using this name and that is introducing this name as kind of the primary name of the deity. Why, why do you think it comes from? As opposed to Very good question, Pam. Um, where does it come from? Where does it come from? All right. Where is Moshe right now? He's in Egypt. Egypt. No, he's not there. He's still in uh, He's in Midian. Oh, Midianite. Yeah. He's in Midian. Right? Who's he hanging out with? Well, presumably, but not as much. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he hanging out with? Yitro. Right? <clears throat> Moshe's hanging out with Yitro. Who's Yitro? Ha. He's priest of Midian. Presumably, Yitro has a pretty tight relationship with, with a deity. Possibly with Yotevafe. So if that's the case... Moshe is introduced to this name for the divine through Yitro, through Midian, through worship that's already happening in Midian. We're going to see that Yitro, uh, as part of our Exodus story, uh, Aaron and Moshe back off and let Yitro sacrifice. Because it's possible that Yitro knows how to deal with this deity in ways that Moshe is just a novice. Moshe doesn't know. We don't know. We're not told. I mean, in theory, you could have just said that. Correct. Correct. So it's possible that Moshe learns not only the name of the deity from Yitro, but learns monolatry from Yitro. Right? What is monolatry? One, one God, one, one name, one God. 
There, there, there is a god associated with location in the ancient world. Gods are associated with location. Often the location is called the name of the god, right? The Ammonites, the land of Ammon, right, is named after the chief god, Ammon. Yeah? All right. So this is, this is fairly common. Monolatry is different from monotheism. What's monotheism? Belief Belief in one God. What is monolatry? The God of the place. Monolatry, think of idolatry. What's idolatry? It's worshiping idols. Okay, monolatry, the worship of one God. It doesn't mean there aren't other gods, and it doesn't mean the god of the place. It means you worship one deity. Shema Yisrael, Yud Hey Vav Hey Eloheinu, Yud Hey Vav Hey Echad. Listen up, Jew. Yud Hey Vav Hey is Eloheinu, is our god. You don't need to worry about the other ones. It is not a statement of monotheism. Shema is not a statement of monotheism. It's a statement of monolatry. You, Jew, have a relationship with this deity exclusively. Right? And if you stray from the worship of this God and start hanging out with Baal... If I see a Christmas tree in your living room, what is this God entitled to? Kill you? <laughs> Kill you? Really? Okay. This God is ent- yes, but this God is entitled to kinah. Kinah, um, in Hebrew, kuf nun aleph. Kinah. Often translated, when we get to the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. I am Elkanah. I am a what god? Jealous god. Okay. So, jealous, eh, it's a later term. It's a later translation of kin'ah. Kin'ah is what I am entitled to if you owe your exclusive loyalty to me. If you owe your exclusive loyalty to me and you step out with somebody else, I am entitled to kinah. It's not an emotion. It's retribution. It's a positioning. Right? It's, it's that I now experience something that is that is only for the person who is owed exclusive loyalty. Like the king. Like the king. Right? Um, this is about relationship. And if you... It, it's not an equal partnership, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Only the person who is owed exclusive loyalty is entitled to Kinan, not you. Right? It's not a feeling that if I pay too much attention to Lisa, Pam can experience kin'ah. That is not what it is. It is only for the person who is owed exclusive loyalty. Yeah? All right. So 
Yud Hei Vav Hei describes itself as El Kana. I am entitled to Kinah when it comes to you Israelites. So don't be, I see if you go over there to that Baal station. I see you with your little Asherah, Reuben. I see you with your Asherah in the corner. Don't think I don't know. I am entitled to Kinah if you Israelites start any of that monkey business. All right. So this is possibly a new name. So part of the question is, where does it come from? What does it mean? So certainly we have have in Torah preserved one meaning. It was last week. Y'all probably didn't read it. I don't know. But God, Moshe says, who shall I say sent me? Right? When I go to the Israelites, who am I supposed to say sent me? What does God answer? I will be what I will be. Eheyeh, asher, eheyeh. Tell them, eheyeh sent you. All right. So how does that story, how the elephant got its trunk, how does that story explain this name? Tell them, eheyeh sent you. How does how does that explain this name for God? Come on. Very good. Right. So it has to do with the Hebrew Shoresh, the Hebrew root. According to that argument, Hava. To be. Or to become. Actually, to become is more accurate. All right, so if it's from Hava, and that is preserved in that part of the story, I will be what I will be. Tell them, sent you, has something to do with this shoresh, this root of being or becoming. All right, some of us are super square, super nerds, and I spent like four hours researching Nobody buys that story. No scholar I looked at buys that story. They see it as a later gloss, a later etymology, retroactively looking at this name and attaching it to the verb to be or to become. There was like one scholar who bought something about becoming, but it's more like to befall, blah, blah, blah. But because you have to torture this root to get this form. You you have to mangle Hebrew to get this. And in general, they say mangling is generally not how language evolves, right? Like, if you have to really torture these letters using Hebrew grammar to get anything close to this, it just it just kind of grinds. It just it doesn't. It's not natural. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. Why would you do that, right? Why, why would that name have evolved if you really have to torture this shoresh, this root? So we're going to look at an alternative explanation. So take a packet, a whole packet, people. Oh wait, this goes yeah. This goes on the back. I think I need one. Thank you. So we're going deep into your 
Yes, Jody, I understand. This is why you are not called a nerd. This is nerd heaven. This is nerd heaven, people. I am nerding out with you. The article that you're getting is from, and I know Pam is down with it, so at least I have one person in the room who's excited about this. The article that you're getting is from Professor Israel Knoll, um, who... We, I made 30 copies, so there should be, there should be plenty. Um, Israel Knoll, a biblical scholar, he is part of the Hartman faculty. So I've learned with Professor Knoll. He's brilliant. I mean, absolutely scary what this guy knows. God reveals God's name to Moses as I am. From the Hebrew root, hey, vav, yud, being. The name yud, hey, vav, however, originates in Midian. And he argues, derives from the Arabic term. Okay, right? You ready? For the Arabic term, love, desire, or passion. Here we have the quote from Exodus 6-2, right? God speaks to Moshe, I am yod I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. I did not make myself known to them by my name, yod The text makes it clear that the name yod known in scholarship as the Tetragrammaton, is of great significance, marking a new era in ancient Israelite history, but it offers no explanation for its meaning. Right? That's in last week's reading. Here, where the name is revealed, there is nothing explaining what the meaning of this name is. Nothing. Two simple questions. What does Shaddai mean and El Shaddai? And the second is, I thought that in Hebrew there was no verb to be. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) He just ended his question with... <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, there is there is a verb to be in Hebrew. Haya. Haya hove yihye. Who yihye? He will be. Who there, there is a verb for to be. You don't have to use it to say there is a book. You can say yesh sefer. Right? Or hasefer Al Hashulchan. The book is on the table. You don't have to say is, right? But I can say the book will be thrown <laughs> next time. <laughs> if, right? So, right, there is, a, there is a verb, right, you know, that says will be. It actually isn't will be thrown. It, but it, it will be blue tomorrow. Yeah. Kahol machar. It will be blue tomorrow. But, but you don't have to use it in every sentence. So there is a verb for to be. What is El Shaddai? A very good question. If you want, you can borrow my book. Any of you are welcome to. And there's an entire excursus in the back of my book on El Shaddai. Excursus four. Um, right, so... So Shaddai, we're not sure. 
<laughs> there you go. There's my answer. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty safe usually with that answer. <laughs> There's a debate among scholars, and we're not sure. Um, the suggestions range from uh, the cognate Sadeh, like field or plain, the god of the plain, to Shada SDH, which in uh, re- related languages means mountain which makes, um, in some case, more sense, the god of the mountain. That's who this is, right? This is the god of the mountain. And we're going to come to the mountain. When the people are redeemed, where are they going to come? They're going to come meet this god at the mountain, right? All right, so um, that's one explanation. Um, Arthur Waskow prefers the one that talks about Shaddaim, breasts. El Shaddai, the breasted one which would take us all the way back probably to the image of a mother goddess, right? You know, the statues of the goddess, she has the big belly and the full breast because that's how you are fed and fertility and the crops and the rain and the good stuff, right, is represented by the full breast. So I like that one, but um, it's it's up to you. It's amazing with all the cultures and languages infused into this wandering group of people that there aren't more words that we just don't know where they came from. There's a lot of them that we don't know where they came from. I'm amazed that we get to any of them (laughs) distinct definition. Right. 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 Some of it's preserved. Mm -hmm. Right? The meaning is preserved because the texts continue to be studied. It, It never got lost. Right. But some, a lot of it did get lost. Yes, bef- before the canonization, for sure. Right. For sure. But what I'm saying is, that, you know, if you're studying this continually, the words tend to not get lost. Mm-hmm. Right. The meaning of the words. Mm-hmm. It's not like it was like the, these, the, these texts were shunted away somewhere for thousands of years and then we discovered them, right? They were continually but used and studied, so the meaning of those words didn't go away. Even if you look at the English language with all the infusion of every other language that's fed into it, someday in in the future, people will be saying, what did that word come from? Where did it come from? Because we have Chinese and Japanese and Spanish and French and everything infused into our language. Well, so remember, Hebrew was protected from some of that. Hebrew was protected. By Why? The tribal, the tribal structure. Huh? It was gone. It, was gone. <laughs> it wasn't used. It was studied, but it wasn't spoken. So it didn't evolve until, until the same way, yeah. right? That's right. So for 2,000 years, the language did not have the influence of other languages working on it the same way a living spoken language it was does. Only the written yeah. Correct. Torah. So they would have, they, but like Rambam, you know, people were writing in Hebrew. So Hebrew did continue to evolve. Hebrew, rabbinic Hebrew is different than biblical Hebrew. Medieval Hebrew is different than rabbinic Hebrew. So it, it evolves, but not nearly at the pace of a language that's being spoken. And spoken Hebrew is evolving. Uh, absolutely. As well. Absolutely. Okay. So, la, 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 la. Assuming the area described by Ptolemy as Midiana is the same area as biblical Midian, an assumption that can be supported by the biblical connection between Midian and Ishmael, 
We can know quite a bit about its material culture in the late Bronze and early Iron Ages. That's our period. The late Bronze, early Iron Age, that's our time that we're dealing with. A group of semi-nomads who produced a very distinct, colorful, and attractive decorated pottery with images of ostriches and other birds lived a little northeast of the area Ptolemy calls Midian in an area known as the Oasis of Kuraya. This pottery style is known in scholarship as Kuraya painted ware. The Kuraya people were also experts in metallurgy specifically the smelting of copper and the production of bronze. The area of Kuraya itself has no copper veins, so they weren't mining copper, but such veins are found further south in the Arabian Peninsula, and the copper ore was sent north to Kuraya for smelting because the people of Kuraya, Midianites, were experts in metalwork. Evidence of this culture's fingerprints is found in other places, right? Um, specifically the sites of Fainan and Timna in the southern Levant. This is Israel. <clears throat> Uzi Avner, an archaeologist working at the Dead Sea and Arabah Science Center, has argued that the Midianites were brought in as specialists or contractors working with the local nomadic tribes or with Egyptians who had a presence in this area during this period producing pure copper from ore for their customers. All right. So now he goes on to give us textual from Tanakh, not from the five books, from, but from Tanakh, from Judges, right? You know that this is called the Pentateuch, but we've talked lots that it should be the Hexateuch. Right. So looking into right, the history as represented by judges, the Midianites were a proto-Arabian tribe. You all are with me on the second page, second heading, yes? Okay. They are a proto-Arabian tribe. Their home base was in Arabia, and they are related to Ishmaelites. So then he gives you these uh, proof texts from judges that links the Midianites with the Ishmaelites, but we're not going to worry about that. Go to the next page. The back, the back. Yes. Oh, sorry. I jumped, didn't I? I apologize. During the Iron Age and afterwards, the Midianites as an Arabian tribe were part of the spice trade, right? So now he's going to show us, again, the connection to the Ishmaelites, but also where these folks are hanging out. Go down to the Shaswe land. Based on Egyptian records dating to the 14th century BCE, we know that the Midianites were not the only ethnic groups living in this area. In the geopolitical list in Amenhotep III's Nubian temple, the people of the Arava and the southern Transjordan were called Shaswe, a generic term meaning something like nomadic tribes. Right? So we're looking at Shaswe. We see the hieroglyphics. For it, We don't know how to pronounce it because hieroglyphics like Hebrew, when it was written, did not have vocalization. It was a consonant, you know, Hebrew is a consonantal language. Um, uh, hieroglyphics also do not have pronunciation. It's not transliteration for the word. It's a visual symbol. It is not a transliteration. Same with Hebrew. Hebrew is not a transliteration because we don't have any vowels. Okay. Actually, we do have some vowels, don't we? There's a theory there, too, by the way. All right. 
One area listed is called Nomad, Nomad Land Seir, which is identical with the Mount Seir region in Edom. We know this, yes? We know about Edom, don't we? Mm-hmm. Right? Who's Edom? That's Adam. Who's Edom? The red guy. Thank you. Asav is Edom, right? Clearly a story that preserves the kinship between the Hebrews and the Edomites. They're our family, people. Edom is Asav, Yaakov's twin brother. These stories preserve a relationship between these nomadic tribes <laughs> that later settle down, right? Okay. So Seir, Edom, the following name in the list and thus nearby or contiguous with Seir was Nomad Land Yehwa. <laughs> okay, sorry, but that was spoken like a nerd. I am sorry, Jody, to tell you, but that excitement sounded just like a nerd. Okay, so so right by Seir is the nomad land called Yehua. The pronunciation of this name is uncertain, since like Hebrew, hieroglyphics do not include vowels, right? All right, so now go to the page that at the bottom says the jealous God. You with me? In the list, Yehuah is the name of a land. Just as one nomadic group lived in a land called Seir, another lived in a land called Yehuah. But in antiquity, a name could sometimes be both a toponym and a theonym. And we get an example. Assyria illustrates this. It is both the name of Assyria's chief deity and of their ancient capital city. Right? Athens is the same same thing. Athena, uh, Athens, right? All right. Now we're going to the Bible again. Biblical evidence suggests that yud heh vav comes from the southeast, either from the hills of Edom or even further south in Midian or beyond. He's going to give us three proof texts. One, these are very, first of all, these are very ancient texts. You know, when we start doing this whole... Oh. JEPD business and we, and we start looking at you know, how old texts are or aren't it doesn't matter where they appear in linear right it's all a mishmash of old and new texts these are very old texts or very early Israelite texts so we look at the song of Moses Deuteronomy 33 yud heh came from Sinai he shone upon them from Seir. He appeared from Mount Paran and approached from Revot Kodesh. All right? So very old poetry describing God coming up from Seir. Looking at the song of Deborah in the book of Judges, Yudhe when you came forth from Seir, advanced from the country of Edom, the earth trembled. And in the song of Habakkuk, God is coming from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran Selah. Each of these poems opens with the image of Yudhe Vafhe coming from his home in the south. 
And uh, Habakkuk's song even goes on to describe how the tents of the Midianites shake as yud stomps on the ground near them on the way to his people. All, right. All of this is textual evidence for the Israelites' understanding that yud comes from down under, comes from the south, right? And these images of God moving up to come to God's uh, people. <laughs> South. Let's go to an Arabic name. If Yudhevavhe's origins are in the nomad land of Yehwa among the Midianites, then the meaning of the name should be from the Arabic language family rather than the Hebrew language family. This further calls into question the etymology in, etymology in Exodus 3 of the Tetragrammaton from the verb to be. Since unlike Hebrew and Aramaic, Proto-Arabic does not have the root hey vav yud for the word to be. Okay, we're going to go past uh, kinah, past monolatry, past iconoclism. No, maybe not. Where do I want to be? No, 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 no. Where's the where's the impassioned part? Do you see it? What? I lost the part about the translation. Thank you. All right, here we go. Sorry, thank you. You know what? I shouldn't have skipped Kina. In 1956, Shlomo Dov Goiten, a scholar of both Jewish and Arabic studies, suggested that the name derives from the Arabic root, and you see it there, um, the way that it's written for those of us who don't speak these languages. You see it? Should come from the Arabic root, H-W-Y. Yeah? And the word hawaya, which means love, affection, passion, desire. He connected this suggestion with the passage in Exodus 34. And if we look at that, right, for you must not worship any other god. Ki yud he vav he kana shemo el kana hu. All right. You, you can't worship other gods. Why? Ki yud he vav he is his name. El Kanahu is a god of Kinah. So, what does that mean? Yud He Vav He Kanashimo. Yud He Vav He Kinah is his name. Right? The, the scholar here is linking that explanation to that's why God is called Yudhe because Kin Ashmo. God is, and in this case, is translated as impassioned. If you look up Kin'ah, one of the translations for Kin'ah is passion in Hebrew, right? So this is a Hebrew explanation for. Right for yud hey vav hey kin ashmo. God's name is passion. What does this do to our understanding of this name? 
We, we just assume always it's about being. Is, was, will be, existence, capital E, right? And we meditate a lot on that in terms of this is how we identify the divine. How we relate to the divine is that it, it is about existence. It's about isness, wasness, always will be, something that is beyond time, beyond like our moment, something much bigger than that. What if it comes from Arabic passion for passion that that's a quality not a time what does that do it it changes god to be a personal a personal affect it's a very different meaning very different meaning what changes what shifts i mean for y'all i mean i hopefully i just blew your mind a little bit right so it's what would that mean? It's emotional. God loves you. God loves you. But layers the concept. Because it can it's unites the concept of God was, is, and will be to in addition to which there is a passionate connection that God has with his people man. And that creates the beginning of our covenantal relationship then. So Passion suggests something about relationship. Existence doesn't do that, does it? At all. I mean, are, are we related to that concept? Of course. Are, you know, is there some part of me that still loves that interpretation? Of course. But God as the impassioned one, that starts to be a whole nother, right, kind of understanding of of the divine, and it certainly suggests something about relationship. Pam? The passion to me suggests that the, this entity might love very quickly, but could also be quick to anger. That, that this that sounds a lot like our God. That, <laughs> that sounds a lot like the God in Torah, because if I feel passionately as regards you, that cuts both ways, doesn't it? It absolutely cuts both ways. That that's a good thing because I'm passionately interested in a relationship with you. I love you. I want to be with you and close with you and intimate with you. And if you screw that up, what is that passion going to feel like, anger. right? It's, it's going to be anger. It's going to be hurt. It's going to be God takes the universe and goes, right? So when we, when we have that prayer, you should love the Lord thy God and with all your might. It's similar to me because this is a passionate God. So I feel, I mean, I'm looking at that prayer for the first time, with all your might seems... All right. First of all, I hate that translation. Okay. So, but but it's okay. It's it's going to help your interpretation actually. What is the word used there in the Vayahafta? You shall love God with all of your heart, with all of your and I hate the translation soul. I hate that. And with all your what in Hebrew? Uvechol meodecha. Yes. Uvechol meodecha. Me'od. What does me'od mean in Hebrew? Much. Very. Good. Garb. You shall love God with all your muchness. 
with all your muchness, with all that you are, right? So it supports your reading even more. That if God is the impassioned one who loves you, and is interested with, with excitement yeah. in you, All of you, you are to respond to that by loving God with all of your maodness. And Dana? And this is what Moses is trying to understand. Lovely. Moshe is learning about this from Yitro. Moshe's being exposed to an idea of a God that is about passionate love and intimate relationship. Possibly a new idea. A very new idea. A very new way of thinking about relationship. And it 100% sets up the covenant. This is the God who they're going to come to only once they're free. Only once they're free and they're going to come to the mountain where this God is. And what is God going to do with them at that mountain? What is the signature move of this Yudhei Vavhei? The covenant. Making a covenantal relationship that exists past that generation and is in existence to this day. That's the move that this God is going to make, which makes complete sense. If God is the passionate, the impassioned, well, of course, what's God going to want to do with the people when they get to the mountain? Marry them. God wants to marry them. They sign the ketubah. That's what the covenant is. Right? Either we describe it as a marriage or we describe it, which is the one I love a lot, as an adoption. God adopts the people as his people through a covenant, through a relationship. This reminds me of a wedding I was at in Israel of one of my granddaughters. The husband's family has a branch that uh, survived the Holocaust and became Hasidim. They came to the wedding with their own space, their own food, and their own dancing. And that was like this relationship to God that was emotional. Right. That you could see their understanding of that as a passionate, excited relationship. If you watch Hasidim dance, there is no doubt Right? Yeah. It's ecstatic. Their dance is ecstatic. Um, at a simcha. <laughs> right. Who goes? What? Um, all right, so I, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving you. Let's look. Let's look. What's happening here? We're going to go back to the text, believe it or not. God continues. <clears throat> My name, yud Vafe, right? I also established what? My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. So God's relationship begins in covenant even before Sinai. God is in relationship, right? God has made promises 
about relationship, even before Sinai. Say therefore to the Israelite people, blah, 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 blah. I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and deliver you from their bondage. You hear it? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Right here begins the literary device, right, of God with the strong hand and the outstretched arm that we are all used to from the Maxwell House Haggadah. Yes? And this one's like, what are you talking about? They're like, what are you talking about? Right? So those of us who grew up on the Maxwell House Haggadah, right, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. All right. Um, I will take you to be your people and I will be your God. This is relationship language. This is love language. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Yes? Mm-hmm. You shall know, right, that I am God. And so in all of these promises, by the way, there are four ways that it's expressed here. And each one of those represents one of the four cups of wine. So where it comes from. Right here. Right? Um, Now, what happens? When Moshe says this to the Israelites, I know this is shocking, they would not listen. I know. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? <laughs> the Jews didn't listen. Something new and different. Um, because why? From what? It's verse nine. The end of that verse in Hebrew. el Moshe, and they didn't listen to Moshe. From what? Mikotzer ruach. What is katsar? Short. Katsar from kotzer ruach. What's ruach? Spirit. Spirit. Breath. All right? Do you see why the translation doesn't even come close? They can't hear Moshe. Why? From kotzer ruach. From a shortness of spirit. From a shortness of breath. When are we short of breath? When we're anxious, when we're scared, right? And when we can't, when we draw short breaths like that, right? Breathing like that actually makes it more difficult to take a deep breath, right? So they are so anxious, they are so fearful, they are so blunted that they can't hear words of redemption. They cannot hear about hope. They cannot hear about an alternate future. They can't hear it. They can't hear him. Right? And remember in Hebrew, listening and hearing are the same word. They can't listen. They can't hear. Right? It's the same word in Hebrew. Um, So God speaks to Moshe and says, go and tell Pharaoh, right? Let my people go, essentially. What does Moshe say? Verse 12. They won't listen to me. The Israelites wouldn't listen to me. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? If the Israelites won't listen to me, who have an interest in listening to what I have to say, you God think Pharaoh's going to listen to me? Who doesn't want these people to go? Are you kidding me right now? And I don't like that the English then links this in, in this way. 
the, how then should Pharaoh heed me, a man of impeded speech? No. They didn't listen to me. Why? What makes you think, God, that Pharaoh's going to listen to me? It's another statement that comes next. Va'ani oral sfataim. I am of foreskinned lips. Now, why do I make such a big deal out of not linking? Why would Pharaoh listen to me since I'm a... I don't want that linkage. I want it broken. The Israelites wouldn't listen to me. What makes you think Pharaoh's going to listen to me? I am of foreskinned lips. Aviva Zorenberg is going to go with an ancient commentary from the Sfat Emet. And the Sfat Emet says, this is causative. This is prescriptive, not descriptive. Moshe is saying, according to the Sfat Emet, they aren't listening. Therefore, I am of foreskinned lips. Because they can't hear the prophet, the prophet can't speak. If you're prophesying and they're not listening, what does that do to you as the prophet? It closes your mouth. So we, we have no idea that he has a problem. <coughs> Moshe self-identifies. And here is saying, I am of orla, of foreskin, related to his mouth. What is the cure for that? Circumcision. Circumcision. What is circumcision a sign of? The covenant. The covenant. The covenant. The The impassioned God, the one who makes the covenant, that's what circumcises the foreskin. That's what cuts away the thickening that prevents speech. That's what cuts through the impediment to the words of redemption being received. The loving, impassioned God of relationship that is the answer. The breed, the covenant, cutting the covenant. That is the answer to the inability to receive the message of redemption. Yes. So God speaks the world into existence, and Moses is then able to speak the people into covenant with God. And Aaron. Right? <clears throat> so we know something about speech. We know about speech's ability to create. God is saying to Moshe, use your speech, prophet, and go tell them about my redemption. But what happens? Because of Kotzer Ruach, they cannot hear. Their Kotzer Ruach, their shortness of spirit, doesn't enable them to hear anything about redemption and that causes 
Moshe to describe himself as being orlat svatayim, as being of foreskinned lips. It will take a lot more speech, a lot more stuff, 10 plagues. It's going to take a lot before this people is ready to stand at Sinai and say and speak we will do it and then we will hear about it it's going to take a whole lot more for this kotzer ruach people this this stiff necked people to be able to hear and say we will, we will, we will do it and then we will listen. We will listen and we will hear. That is the journey that we begin this morning and get to the uh, end of a long, long time from now. Um, I gave you Aviva Zornberg. It's a beautiful piece uh, by her. Um, and for her, this God of relationship, this impassioned God, this God who longs and yearns to deliver this people and be for them a God, have them be God's people. God wants this so much. And Moshe, the Israelites, and Pharaoh all are like, no thanks. Right? God is working really hard to make Getulah happen, to make redemption happen. And all the players that God is trying to be trying to be in relationship with are like, can't do it. People can't hear. Moshe can't speak. Pharaoh doesn't want any part of it. All the human characters in the story are essentially blocking, right? God's attempts to redeem this people, and we're going to see that continue. Right, And so for me, I, I will close with this Shabbat. Uh, may we figure out ways and be about the kinds of things that enable us to hear, that enable us to believe that it can be different, that enable us to have true, real hope that there is Geulah, there is redemption, and it's possible. But we have to deal with our Kotzer Ruach. We have to deal with our fear. We have to deal with our stress. We have to deal with all the crazy that we get all caught up in or we won't be able to hear and we won't be able to take any of the steps that are necessary for us to leave Mitzrayim, to leave the place of the narrow stuckness of Egypt. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.